0: Welcome to Whiskey and
1: Wonder.
2: All right. All right. We are back after last week's awesome episode. Hello, everyone. Technical difficulties. Yes. But we are glad to be back. I have um, reverted to our old camera system. <laughs>
1: the old technology old back Old technology
2: back again. until I figure out the new technology. And I think I've got a bite on what was going wrong with that. So hopefully, here before long... We can get back. You can even see one of the cameras in the background behind me there if you're on YouTube. <laughs> um, so I have definitely been playing with it.
1: All right. Well, uh, we are Whiskey and Wonder. We are a podcast where every week we review a new whiskey and we teach the other person something that has made us wonder. Um, I'm Megan.
2: I'm Tyler. And apparently I forget to do this every single week for over a year now.
1: That's okay. <laughs> but that's why I'm here. I appreciate you. You, you balance me out. Yes, we balance each other out. We, yes, we do. together make a whole idiot. Yes, we do. Completely. <laughs>
0: yeehaw, yee-haw,
2: All right. Um, we're just going to jump right in today. Um, a little bit about what we do. Megan just told you about that. Uh, you can find us. I took all the, if you're on YouTube, I took all that writing off the thing there. We're going to put all that in the show notes. Uh, you can find us at whiskeyandwonder.com. Uh, YouTube, we are whiskeyandwonder, youtube.com slash wonder. Uh, If you want to email us, send us something for mailbag, send us your feedback, send us um, something you like, something you didn't like. Uh, Get us at contact at whiskeyandwonder.com. Instagram, we are at whiskeypodcast. If you want to donate to us, you can do that. Do so through Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash whiskeyandwonder and paypal.me slash whiskeyandwonder. All our other social medias and handles and all that good stuff can be found in the show notes of both the episode and... YouTube video um as always we want to thank everybody that does support us that makes this doable for us we you know we couldn't do it without you and we appreciate your feedback and your help and I actually was at the bar last night and saw some of our supporters I saw friend Morgan and Daniel as I was um wrapping up my shift at the bar and then got called back on to work again at the bar but that's another story for another (laughs) day um if you, as far as announcements go, we don't have too much going on other than one big one this week. Yes. Um, you know, our typical check out the store, check out, uh, we've still got glassware, whiskey tumblers, we've still got a couple stickers. stickers. Um, we're always looking for guests and guest drinkers. Did I just to interject for one moment though, speaking of glassware and glass stickers, did your... Yes. They got there as your dad yes. and Paula got there as perfect.
1: Yes. And they also took my mother's home with them <laughs> to oh,
2: lovely. deliver oh, to her. So that's nice. That was nice of them. Thank yeah. you guys for that.
1: Thank you. Um,
2: <clears throat> yes. Thank you. Um, on that note.
1: Let's talk about the year of end special.
2: Yes. We, end of year. <laughs> yes. The end of year special. <laughs> Not year of end. <laughs> if you guys have been around with us for a long time, uh, last year, was our first year doing this, and we decided at the uh, last episode of the year mm-hmm. to excuse me to do a end-of-year special where we kind of just didn't present a topic and we just narrowed down our favorite uh, whiskey that we had done throughout the year. Um, it sits in a wonderful decanter with our logo etched in that uh, friend Shelby got us, mm-hmm. and it has been crowned the Whiskey of the Year. Uh, by us. So, you know, go to your local ABC store and tell them you drank the whiskey of the year and they're not going to know what What you're talking about, but (laughs) we will. Um, Anyway. So I've started working really hard on getting that bottle good and empty to prepare (laughs) for this year's end of year uh, best whiskey. So we want to make a couple of announcements about that episode. So we are going to do what we did last year. Uh, we're probably going to start the episode off with that just so we don't impede any tastes or anything like that. And we're going to each select our two favorite whiskies from the year that goes back to, uh, I believe it is episode 16. If I'm not mistaken, um, if I can find my tab here, I believe it goes back to the episode where we did Woodford reserved. I just brought the wrong tab over here. Um, uh, And what we're going to do is we're going to choose anything. Let's see. Episode 16 was Woodford reserved. That was the first whiskey we did in 2021. So anything episode 16 and newer we have uh, to choose from. In addition to that, after we do uh, our two favorites that we've done and we essentially do it March Madness style Mm -hmm. down into our combined favorite of the year, which will go into the decanter I mentioned earlier. Uh, that'll be the whiskey of the year. After we do that, we plan on having a blind taste test of all the whiskeys. Well, let me rephrase. <laughs> <Whoa>. out, out <laughs> all the whiskeys we've done in 2021. So we're going to do eight whiskeys. We have friend Shelby is willing to be our bartender.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And what we're going to do is we're going to put all the whiskeys we've done this entire year. We're going to put them up uh, on the website. On a poll. On a poll. And you guys go vote for eight whiskeys you want to see us do. It yes. can be, please don't do this, but it could be some of the worst ones that we've had.
1: It could be. It could be some of the best.
2: It could be some of the best.
1: It's whatever you guys want. We're Whoa. going to do the top eight the that top. get voted in. So.
2: Yes. That we will have. I will not have. I'm going to show Shelby how to access the poll. I will not look. Nope. Megan doesn't know how to access the bowl,
1: <laughs> So I um, will not look either. She
2: won't look. And Shelby will be the only one who sees and she will pour and mm-hmm. we will proceed to get drunk at the end of the year and, and try to guess the, which
1: one is which. Yeah.
2: And if and, you guys want to be really, really, really mean, you'll um pick a bunch of stuff we didn't like. <laughs> if you want to be really nice, you'll pick some stuff that was really nice. We really enjoyed. So.
1: That it's all up to you guys. So
2: We are going to get the poll up by next week's episode. So that will be um, next Sunday, the 24th. We should have the poll up. And I believe we will keep it open just because I'm thinking now as we do this. We might need a little bit of time to gather if it's whiskeys that we don't have anymore mm-hmm. or that were a gift or something that was donated just a little bit of. Uh, so maybe we should call it... Say we'll end it December 12th. All right, that sounds good. So, December 12th is the day the poll will close. So, you guys have between the end of October and the middle of December to go vote for your favorite whiskeys or whatever whiskeys you want us to do. You know, like I said, whatever you vote, if it's nasty, if it's good, if it's your favorites. Let us know. Email us. Let us know what you've. Or maybe not let us know what you voted, but why you voted. Yeah. Um, for the whiskeys you did. Like I said, we want to be completely in the dark on this. Yep. So, um, other than that, I guess we can go ahead and move it right along. Unless you have anything else.
1: No, that was the only announcements we had.
2: All right.
0: The
2: Open Segment. All right. Um, Megan, I noticed earlier, <laughs> you're, um, how do I say this nicely? Hobbled.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. So, oh, well, this has been the first re- really week I've had a lot to share for the Open Segment. Um, probably because I've had the week off and I haven't been a slave to corporate Retail Amel- uh, Amelica. 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 Um, so I have Meniere's disease. I don't know if I've ever talked about that on the podcast before. Um, but Meniere's disease is an inner ear disease that can cause like really intense vertigo. Um, and I, I believe it was on Thursday. Um, I... Got a small bout of vertigo and fell backwards into a dresser. Ooh. Um, and I I fell into the dresser on my left side, but I l- like tried to plant myself with my right hip. And as I planted myself, I heard a. Ooh. And ever since then, my um, trying to use my right leg has been very hard, and it's getting more and more painful every day and I keep hoping that it's gonna get better and it's getting worse so I'm probably gonna have to go to the doctor
2: yeah it sounds Um, like it sounds like a good doctor visit there oh yeah I am yeah I thought you were gonna say you've been having bouts of vertigo all week and like that was why you were struggling to no struggling to maneuver earlier but okay
1: nope so that's that's my uh my issue and it's not and I'm out of shape pain it's an actual like shooting there's something wrong pain. I was kind of hoping it was just I was out of shape, but it, it's just getting worse. It's Damn, not.
2: I'm I'm sorry. That sucks. Eh. That's rough.
1: Yeah. So that's why I'm going to wobble all over your, or hobble all over your house and well,
2: that's, everything. That's, uh, you're welcome to hobble away.
1: Yep. <laughs> um,
2: so uh, I don't know if, if don't let me say something that you don't want said, but I know Navia is, did she, was she around you? Was, she was not. She was not? Okay. Nope.
1: She oh. was um, downstairs. Okay. So. Well,
2: interesting. Yep. So. Um, well, as Megan was hobbling earlier, I told her, oh, I, I asked what was wrong. Shit, I'll tell you on the open segment. Okay, cool. Uh, I said, it sounds like you and I have had a similar week. Uh, I too am hobbled. Not as bad as Megan though.
1: Uh-oh. What did you
2: do? Uh, I bent over forward. <laughs> I was at work and I literally had a piece of paper in my hand. I had a little, uh, we have uh, a piece of equipment that comes shipped to us in a metal box that you can take the lid off of and they just ship it that way. And I put this sheet of paper. I was supposed to put the sheet of paper back in there with the equipment that came in it. And I bent forward to do that. And I felt my back start to go. I I said, Oh, Oh, I caught it. Let me just sit down. I got, fortunately I was in an area, nobody could see me. So I sat down Indian style for a minute. I'm sorry. Crisscross applesauce and um, said, okay, let me just kind of move over, do some cat calls and some basic yoga that I know are good back stretches. And I I got it. I caught this. Yep. I did it. And I went to get up and I, I hit about, I don't know, three quarters of straight up. And I said, Oh no, nope, I didn't catch it. <laughs> oh God. And so I threw out my back bending over
1: with a sheet of paper
2: to put a sheet of paper in a metal box.
1: And that's how, you know, millennials are getting old.
2: <laughs> I knew I was getting old when I threw my back out like a year or two ago, just by getting out of bed. Mm. That was the worst one I've ever done. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I'm getting out of the damn bed. Uh, I, and I am starting a. Uh, 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 I'm not. I'm not doing keto again by any stretch, but I am definitely cutting out fast food, sweets. Starting tomorrow, it's like home cooked. Not low carb necessarily, but like home cooked better food. Not, yeah. No fast food. No eating out. None of that. None of that junk food crap. So.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um. Speaking of, do you guys like cinnamon toast crunch?
1: I love cinnamon toast crunch.
2: I have two-thirds, maybe three-quarters of a bag of Cinnamon Toast Crunch that you are more than welcome to take home with you.
1: You're not going to eat it?
2: No. Today is my last day, and we're, right. we're going to have spaghetti here in a little while. So well,
1: I will take your Cinnamon Toast Crunch home.
2: You are welcome to it. All right. Um, uh, I, I'll tell this one. Uh, I mentioned seeing Morgan and Daniel at the bar yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a hell of an event that I've never worked an event for the bar ever. Um, let me rephrase that. Let me define a couple things. I've worked events at the bar, as in, like, we're having events going on while I'm working. Yeah. I have never left the bar to to, go to an event event where we're pouring, like, four beers. Yeah. Or, you know, and taking cans and stuff. Yeah. I worked my first event yesterday, and it was amazing. Cool. It was at a Catholic church, and...
1: Uh, Okay. I mean... Catholics are not against alcohol.
2: No Catholics are drinkers as <laughs> we found out. Um, it was a marvelous little ceremony that I, or maybe not a ceremony it's not a festival that I was, I was enthralled with. Essentially it was a celebration of countries around the world. And because Catholicism is a worldwide religion.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and they had different, uh, not necessarily like the pop-up tents. Yeah. Just with that represented a different country that had food. Oh, from that country. And yum. They, oh, it was so, so good. I had so much food that I've never had before and so much food that from other countries that I've had that I never thought I would get again, like um Spätzle. So, which is for Americans, Spätzle. <laughs> uh, it's the German egg noodle. I love, I love it. I probably butchered that pronunciation of it. Anyway. Um it was so fun. Anyway, we ended up selling out of almost all the beer we brought. That's good. We even had yeah, it was amazing. We had uh somebody run us extra beer and thankfully they did. Awesome. Because yeah, we just yeah. And anyway, so I got back to the bar clocked out, was waiting on my food, Um, and as I was, like, unloading, I saw Morgan and Daniel walk into the bar, and I talked with them for a few minutes.
1: Hi, friends. And
2: I um, was waiting on my food, and I thought they had left. Mm -hmm. And so I was just kind of waiting, waiting around at the bar, chatting with people, you know, when I could. And my, my boss, who I had worked the event with, comes up and goes, clock back in. Now. I right as I was talking to Morgan, she had just come back over and said, Hey, you can come join us. I was like, Oh, I didn't know you were here. Um, my boss walks over and goes, Clock back in. Now. The lines were literally both lines were out the door. They were having an event, a uh, a drag show. And so the drag shows are really fun there. Yeah. Um and so I got the <laughs> I clocked out and got the clock back in for another half hour, forty five minutes to help them get
1: that line down. Help
2: get the line down and get get their feet under them. That's awesome. Before the night shift. So that was a It was, I had a blast yesterday. So,
1: yeah, it sounds like you had a pretty good day yesterday. It was so much fun. I had a majority good day yesterday. Um, So a very, very good friend uh, came into town. His name is Elliot. Um, He came in for the weekend. Um, So my dad left Tuesday, and then Elliot came in on Friday. So it's been a really fun vacation getting to see people I normally don't get to see. Um, He came down specifically to go to the Renaissance Fair.
2: Oh nice. I forgot what's so, going on.
1: Yep. Um so it was Beer Fest at the Renaissance Festival.
2: Did you hobble um, around at the Renaissance festival?
1: Yes. Impressive. <laughs> yes, I did. I was uh fully dressed up as well. Um, more I,
2: impressive, most impressive, but you're not a Jedi yet.
1: Not yet. Um, but so we decided we wouldn't go when it opened Um, But we were planning to stay until they closed at 5.30. So we figured we would get there by 11.30 and we would have six hours there. Um, The, like, beer tasting would go until 3.30. Um, Basically, they were giving samples of all the different, like, uh, craft beers and stuff. Um, And... By then, we would be feeling good. If we wanted more beer, we could go on one of the lines and like buy a beer. But we figured we would have all day to experience everything the fair had to do. And so we leave the house at 11. It's a 20-minute drive. We did not get into the fair until almost 3 o'clock. Damn. The traffic to get in took two and a half hours hours to park we literally sat for two and a half hours in the car there's some real shit (laughs) y'all everybody's been there everybody has experienced that it was awful and the only thing that we could think of why it's so packed because renaissance fairs sometimes you get traffic going in but it's you know it's not hours of waiting um and it's Normally, you know, only nerds who go to the Run Fair. It's a it's a geeky thing to do. It
2: is not. I know so many people that go to that fair.
1: Okay, well, they need to stop and let it just be for geeks again. <laughs> um, but I think it was because twenty twenty, there wasn't a Ren Fair. There wasn't anything to do, and this is one of the first big events that has opened back up. People are so sick of being stuck in their house. Everyone and their mother decided to go to Ren Fair.
2: So. So uh, I know sucked. I know there is a like I've I've only been one time. I would love to go back, but I've only been the one time. And there's a coupon you can get at Harris Teeter that's like a buy one get one basically. Yeah. And that weekend is always super crowded. Yeah. That was the weekend. I don't know if that was this weekend nope. or not. No, it wasn't. You guys planned around that one? Yep. Oh wow. Yep. Well, that's yeah. uh. That sucks that you didn't get the full experience yeah. of the Renaissance. By fair, the but... time
1: we got in, like the um, the beer tasting thing had like was over, even though it was scheduled till three thirty. I guess like they ran out because there were so many people. So Damn. we got in and we didn't even get to experience beer fest. Um, well, so.
2: you don't even like beer though.
1: There are some. I had a um, a dark IPA that I really enjoyed. Um, and I like, uh, frostbite
2: frostbite. Is it from around here?
1: Yes. Okay. I would remember the name of the company if I saw it. Okay. Um, so I had that, that was really good. And I love mead. Mm. So I am a mead drinker and you can really only get mead at RIN fairs. So that was delicious.
2: Foothills brewing. That's it. That's it. Frostbite.
1: Yep. It is an IPA frostbite. Yep. It was very good. Okay.
2: Well, I'm glad you at least, well, did you get to have any beer, any mead while you were there or? Yes. Okay. Well, I'm um, glad you got to have some at least.
1: Yes. I got the frostbite, um, the IPA, and then I got a black raspberry mead. So. Okay.
2: Well, I don't really have anything else for the open segment and I know my topic's a smidge long today.
1: All right. So. Let's jump on into to opening the bottle. Uh, there go. The Open Segment This w- Wait what? Tyler <laughs> You what? just played the wrong music
2: Oh Jesus Christ You Again? did the Open
1: Segment Opening the Bottle
2: I have too many words that say <laughs> opening on the screen when I look at it. Uh, I need to change that. Somehow. Uh, change yeah. this
1: one to bottle or something. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I do. <laughs> oh, my God. That.
1: I was like, wait, 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 wait. Uh. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we are drinking um, a company we've had before, which is Jefferson's. Yes. Um, Jefferson's bourbon. We are drinking the, um, Oh, that was a nice pop. If I can see if I can replicate that in the microphone. I don't
2: know if y'all heard it.
1: Uh, that was a good one. um, So today we are drinking Jefferson's ocean. And this is one of the coolest aging processes I have ever read about for a bourbon. Um, so this bourbon is aged on a ship at sea. In 2008, while aboard the ship of fellow Kentucky native and o founder Chris Fisher, Jefferson's master blender Trey Zoller got a wild idea. As he and Chris watched the whiskey squirrel in their glasses, compelled by the constant rock of the waves, they pondered... What might happen to a barrel of bourbon if it were aged at sea? The rest, as they say, is history. The constant movement of the ocean and extreme temperature fluctuations as Osserts traversed the globe completely transformed the whiskey. The result is a hyper-aged, darker, richer, and caramelized bourbon with incredible depth and complexity. Since this discovery, Trey has sent hundreds of barrels around the world with each voyage seeing on average over 25 ports, five continents, and two equator crossings. This is bourbon aged at the mercy of the sea. Because it is aged at the sea and it's all small batch, each batch will get different flavors um, because the fluctuations in temperature and the movement of the sea Changes everything. So the we are drinking from uh, Voyage 23. Um, so everything we give will be from that particular uh, batch. Um, can't guarantee that whatever you get uh, will be the exact same flavors, but they all will be a very intense, um, very caramelized uh, experience no matter what you get.
2: So I want to take uh, a moment here. And get a couple things off. Well, one one thing off my chest, and one thing that I need to give credit where credits due. Uh, firstly, this whiskey was a gift. It was from friend Shelby, who knew that we had been. I, I I've heard a lot of great things about it. I don't know if you have Megan, but I, I have. I've heard a lot, heard of, a lot, a lot, of,
1: lot of really good things.
2: Um, she got us a gift of this. Uh. But she gave it to us under a condition that when her dad was in town, he got to try it as well. Her dad was in town last week. And the thing I need to get off my chest is...
1: You've already had it.
2: I've had it. I had it with him. So
1: You slut.
2: I could not help myself with the temptation. We were trying things and this is the only one I've ever had. Um, Not true. There's another one we have yet to do. <laughs> That uh, it, I'll be, I'll just tell you right up front. It's the um, double rye. I've already mentioned it. I had it when I was out West. Yeah. Cause uh, you're, at the, yeah. you're at the, that, yeah. that's more. Yes. That one's more it. kosher than yeah this. So this is the only one I've ever actually had the bottle here and said, I'm going to open the bottle and drink this before we shoot the podcast.
0: Mm-mm-mm. So Mm-mm. I wow.
2: want to be honest and transparent. So I have had this before. I already know my opinion of it. Um, I did smell it while Megan was talking and immediately was hit with a very, very, very faint bit of burn your nose hairs, but not much.
1: It seems to me like this has a a, a milder smell than a lot of whiskeys.
2: That's exactly what I was about to say. It's a very mild, smooth smell.
1: Yes, for sure. Um, Like you really have to like inhale to get any burn your nose hairs Um, and really to pick up any scent, you have to really kind of put the glass at your nose. Um, typically when Tyler pours, I can at least get sort of a smell as it goes into the glass. Um, today I didn't get any of that. So I'm, Uh, oh, go ahead.
2: I'm just gonna, I can't pick anything specific out smell wise. I get just a very smooth whiskey, a little bit of sweetness, maybe, um, that's it's just, it smells smooth. That sounds yeah. stupid to say, but it smells smooth.
1: I mean, you're exact, you're exactly right. It smells smooth. Um, it's definitely smells sweet. So I'm going to say there's like a hint of caramel or something along those lines, but it's a very, very calm smell. Um, I'm hoping the taste is more intense than the smell, Um Tyler already knows if it is or not, so I'm not even going to look at him as I say that.
2: I'm not saying either way. I'm not giving any facial expressions.
1: Okay. Uh, We are supposed to be smelling notes of salted caramel popcorn and tropical fruit. Okay, so I get caramel. um,
2: Yeah, absolutely. I get the caramel and maybe, maybe get a little bit of popcorn, like, caramel popcorn in
1: there. Um, Yeah, kind of. But I don't get any fruit. Does salted caramel smell different than regular caramel? That's, I mean, I've had salted caramel. I've had regular caramel. I don't know if they have a different smell. I've literally never stopped to smell the caramel. (laughs) You need to stop and smell the caramel. Uh, Apparently
2: I do. I would love to. I love caramel. You want to know a quick uh, sweet, savory snack that I'm going to show how much of a fat ass I am? (laughs) If I say this? <laughs> Go ahead. Take like Lay's potato chips and drizzle caramel over them. Put them in like a bowl. It that sounds fantastic. Delicious. You're cheating. You're supposed to tell. Oh, you did tell us originally. Yeah. Okay. Never mind. That's... Go ahead. <laughs> yes, but anyway, that is a lovely. Um, that is a lovely sweet and salty snack that I would recommend everybody try at least once.
1: Okay, so I took my first sip. Um, it tastes definitely better than it smells but it is still a smooth taste um but it's not i wouldn't say it's mild anymore um at the front and mid is definitely a sweetness um definitely getting a caramely. um i guess to be nice to jefferson's i'll say it's salted caramel i don't really know if i can tell the difference in a whiskey but um but at the end the finish leaves me kind of like a um like a dilly type yeah that
2: and there's a fruit mixed in it there's yeah. some kind of fruit in there as well another thing i observed uh from my first drink was the burn uh, not even like the uh, i don't want to call it the burn the burn was very minimal it it's the warmth it it spread like it's a, a delayed warmth it goes down and it sits and then it starts spreading warmth
1: through me um, I'm getting some pineapple. Um, pineapple. Yeah, that's, that's the fruit I'm like able to select, um, out of this. It's, it's very pineapple but it tastes like, it tastes like, obviously caramel, but then it tastes like you took a bite of a pineapple and then like a tiny bite of a pickle with it. Like it's a very, you know that sensation you get in your mouth when you have something pickled that's like a it's not like sour where you're like puckered it's but when something's pickled you get pickled yeah you get that sensation it i'm getting that um
2: one thing and i don't know if this was said on the podcast or if this was said to me outside uh, and i don't know if you do this but I i have not been doing this i'm started with this one let it get under your tongue because you you have taste buds under your tongue as well.
1: Okay, I've never um, heard of that. So, I guess what I'm going to do real quick. Yep.
2: I did a um I did one of the breaths where I exhale and then while it's in my mouth and then swallow it and got a much more natural earthy flavor to it as well. Much more oaky.
1: Yeah. Um that definitely brought out both the burn and the sweetness when I went under my tongue. Um, like definitely more of like a peppery burn at that point. Um, but this, the caramel that sweetness was ten times stronger under my tongue than it was when I had it just over my tongue. Um, but no, that was very interesting. Um,
2: I just one last one last little observation I noticed. I got a hint of vanilla on the back end that time and i still can't put my finger on the fruit i don't think it's pineapple Uh, maybe it's a little more dilly flavored um Hmm. but there's a fruit there in the mid for me what are we supposed to smell
1: notes of salted caramel popcorn and tropical fruit that's as, as specific as they get
2: for taste or smell
1: for taste wow taste is it's supposed to taste exactly how it smells according to jeffersonsbourbon.com. The finish is warm and viscous with a hint of brininess. Yes, that is the experience I was trying to think of. Brine. That yeah. brine taste yeah, you get brine. when you pickle yeah, yeah. something. So I would definitely agree with the finish. Finish is definitely warm, viscous, and briny. Um, I wish they were a little bit more specific in the flavors you're supposed to be getting. I will say when I... Tasted it under my tongue. I could, excuse me, get more of a salted caramel. Like I could tell that there was there was that salt um, in the bourbon. So I don't, I don't know.
2: Where is my whiskey curious. will? Um, there we go. I'm trying to see in here what kind of uh, aromatics. Okay, so I just pulled up another review here mm-hmm. uh, from the Whiskey Wash. Uh, the mash bill is unknown. Uh, this particular batch. So obviously they're probably not doing the same batch. Uh, it doesn't say which batch this is. Um. This batch lines up with the rye grain recipe bourbon uh, with strong floral notes that balance with salted caramel while I initially chalked up Jefferson's claims of similarity to Islay's scotch to marketing fluff. There's certainly a soft salt and light smoke note mixed with the caramel that I cannot recall encountering in any other bourbon. Further, the palate, that was for the nose, for the palate, further supporting my suspicion that this particular batch of Jefferson's Ocean included mostly rye grain mash bill bourbon, the front of the palate leads off with floral notes, citrus notes, and a light black pepper spice. In the mid palate, those flavors taper off, and the bourbon sweetens with caramel driving most of the flavor, similar to the nose. Soft salt and smoke combined with the caramel and finish, and the finish tapers off with a light dry note of oak, combining with the predominant caramel. Um. Yeah, so that was that was another review on it. Um, what they what they got. I, you know, I think f- the floral notes, because uh, I'm so conflicted on floral notes because he literally separated out vanilla in here, but my wheel, this wheel that, uh, I don't remember what this came with.
1: Um, I can't remember what it came with either.
2: It's got Litten on it. Uh, oh, this came with the, oh, the, 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 the glasses. Glasses. <laughs> glasses, yes. Um, Yes, this came with the nipple glasses. It's got as the aromatics. Uh, well, that's sweet, not really um, floral. So never mind. I guess I guess vanilla should be separated out. Hmm. Anyway, we're gonna interesting keep on drinking on this and let you know exactly what we thought, and we'll move on.
1: It's time. For the Wonder Segment.
2: All right. It is my week, and I'm going to preface this episode by saying a couple things about what's in this episode. I already talked to Megan um, off air about it, and...
1: I don't know what the topic is. I just know that I need to know that everything Tyler says is not necessarily his opinion.
2: Yes, yes. I am going to... Uh, And I'll break this down. We're going to hear something from somebody's own lecture. Um, And his words are not my words. I do not necessarily believe or think everything that I'm going to talk about. Um, I just want to put the information out there and let people make their own decisions. We don't normally do political stuff. um, And I'm trying to keep a very... It's not a political topic, but it's it it like nudges up against that line. So I'm trying to walk that fine line. So I want to preface this again. This is not my idea. This is not my thinking. This is just something I heard about and was like, that's fascinating. Let me research into this. And the further I got in there, the more I was like, this is very interesting. There are examples that are... I don't agree with, but, you know, not my words. So don't hold, don't shoot the messenger, I guess. Okay. So with that, I'm going to take another drink and we'll okay. get started.
1: I'm a little worried about what this topic is going to be. Um, but I mean, let's hang on for the ride. Uh, this is going to so, be a little polarizing.
2: It is definitely probably going to be polarizing. Um, today, we're going to talk about Yuri Besmanov. And ideological subversion. That is heard, a lot of big words. You ever heard of subversion, subversion, since I tend to combine the two?
1: No. Okay. What do you mean?
2: I just didn't know if you knew what it was. I know
1: like what to subverse your expectations.
2: I have never heard that term
1: in my life. What does that mean? Um, to, you expected one thing, but then it was completely something else. Okay.
2: Interesting. All right, so in case people are not familiar with him, Yuri Bezmanov was a Soviet journalist and a KGB informant who defected to Canada in 1970. We're not going to get too far into the importance, uh, before we get too far into the importance of Yuri's defection, we'll talk a little bit about his life in the Soviet Union and what he did for the KGB. Not that much is known about Yuri's childhood, other than he was born near Moscow on December 11th, 1939 and that his father was a very high-ranking Soviet Army, of, Soviet Army official. At the age of 17, Yuri began at the Institute of Oriental Languages, as, which was part of the Moscow State University. The Moscow State University was directly controlled by the KGB. During his time at this university, Yuri studied a multitude of, su- of subjects ranging from history to literature, to music, but ultimately he focused on learning about Indian culture, Indian being from India. Okay. He even went so far as wanting to look like an Indian person. You and I might think this behavior is a little strange, but his Soviet teachers encouraged this since graduates from this university typically went on to be foreign journalists, diplomats, or even spies. In addition to studying a wide array of subjects, Yuri was also required to take military training. During this training, he would learn several military skills, including how to interrogate, interrogate prisoners of war and how to play strategic war games using maps of foreign countries. It's safe to say that Soviets were pretty damn serious about mil- militarizing the youth. Yeah. In 1963... Yuri graduated, and he spent the next two years in India working as a translator, as well as a public relations officer with a Soviet economic aid group that built refineries called Soviet Refineries Constructions. After two years, in 1965, Yuri was called back to Moscow and began as an apprentice for RIA Novosti, which was a government-owned news agency for their classified department of political publications. Shortly after he started there, he discovered that around 75% of the employees at Novosti were KGB officers and the remaining quarter were KGB freelance writers and informers. His job at this time was to edit Soviet propaganda and to help plant it in foreign media. In addition to that, Yuri accompanied delegations of Novosti's, uh, so he accompanied delegations of Novosti's guests from foreign countries on tours of the Soviet Union or to international conferences that were held in the Soviet Union. In other words, he chaperoned foreign guests, in addition to uh, propaganda. Yuri claims that he was forced to become an informer while at his position as a Novosti journalist. As an informer, he was to gather information and spread disinformation to foreign countries as propaganda and to forward the cause of Soviet subversion. So we're going to jump a little bit. And we're going to talk about what subversion is and what it wants to accomplish. I'm sure you can assume it's not good since we're talking about the KGB. <laughs> <and> we're American. <laughs> Subversion is defined by Merriam-Webster as a systematic attempt to overthrow or undermine a government or political system by persons working secretly from within. A second explanation I found stated that, quote, Subversion refers to a process by which the values and principles of a system in place are contradicted or reversed in an attempt to transform the established social order and its structures of power. Authority hierarchy and social norms essentially it's a tactic uh, essentially it's a tactic that's used to create negative change within a group typically other governments by demoralizing the cultural values and changing the population's perception of reality a few common subversive actions include infiltrating the armed forces, police, and other institutions of the state as well as non-government organizations, penetrating and manipulating existing political parties, and generating civil unrest through demonstrations, strikes, and boycotts. For a group to be successful in subverting a government, the group and its ideas must be viewed as an acceptable alternative to the status quo. So let's get back to Yuri now, now that we know a little bit about subversion. In 1969, Yuri had received rapid promotion and was sent back to India, this time as a Soviet press officer and a public relations agent for the KGB. While in New Delhi, he continued creating Novost—I can't say this word—Novosti, N-O-V-O-S-T-I, Novosti's Soviet propaganda, and was directed to slowly establish the Soviet sphere of influence in India. Also in 1969, the Soviet government secretly opened a new department within all its foreign embassies called the Research and Counter Propaganda Group. Yuri was made deputy chief of this new department in the Soviet embassy in India. This department was responsible for gathering intelligence on influential and politically significant citizens in India. On February 8, 1970, Yuri was set to see the new American film, the incident with two of his colleagues, his colleagues reported that Yuri had not purchased a ticket. And when was asked about it, he told his colleagues, go ahead. I'm going to find a scalper and buy one. I'll meet you inside. But Yuri never intended to buy a ticket. He left the theater and changed into quote unquote hippie clothes, armed with a complete wig and beard combo And he joined a tour group. He managed to use this tour group to make it to Athens, Greece, where he turned himself in and his defection was reported to the U.S. The Soviet Union declared that Yuri was only a clerical worker, but the American intelligence thought he was an agent of the KGB. Yuri was able to contact the American embassy and after going through multiple interviews with the CIA, he was helped to seek asylum in Canada. Yuri obviously adopted a new name and identity for his own safety. Uh, He would go on to live in Canada for 13 years where he would study political science at the University of Toronto for two years. He would get a job with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and he would meet his wife, Tess. In 1983, Yuri and his wife would move to Los Angeles where they had a daughter and later a son And from what I can tell, this was Yuri's second son. I think he left a son when he defected. Um, He would go on to move back to Canada in his later life, where he would ultimately divorce in 1989. Um, Two weeks later, oh, excuse me, two weeks later, Yuri was reported dead from a massive heart attack that was partially caused by alcoholism. So you might be thinking at this point, this is a little short for the Wonder segment. It's not done yet. During his time in the West, Yuri gave several lectures on subversion and how the Soviets and the KGB used it. I found one from 1983, and I'm going to read the entire lecture, and I promise it won't take that long. I encourage everybody to go out and read this again, read it on your own time, and form your own opinions. Again, I want to state that these are Yuri's words, not mine. I'm not trying to tell anyone what to think, what to believe. I just simply want you to understand the subtle ways, and I heard about this, and I want to make people aware of the subtle ways that the KGB and other groups throughout history have orchestrated the destruction of other governments or groups. The 1983 lecture can be found entirely at Bezmenov, That's bezmenov.net slash lecture. There's even a link to a YouTube version in case you'd rather listen to Yuri himself give the lecture. Um, there's also an interview done with him. Uh, I don't remember what year the interview was done, but that is on there as well. Um, again, I stress this is not my beliefs. This is not, I'm not telling you what to think. I'm just making you aware of what other countries are doing. Now, with all that said, keep in mind as we go through this lecture, these things are coming from a KGB informant in 1983, literally 38 years ago. All right. So here we go with the start in the lecture. Subversion is the term, if you look in a dictionary or criminal codes to that matter, usually is explained as part of activity. To destroy things like the religion, government system, political, economic system of a country. And I'm going to stop before I get too much further in here. He has a very thick Russian accent. So some of the grammar in this is not great. Not great. And it might cause me to stumble a little bit. I'm going to try to read it as best I can. I'll try to correct it when I when I can. If I make grammatical errors, I promise I do speak English.
1: <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes.
2: <laughs> um All right, so I'm going to start
0: over.
1: Okay.
2: Since it was just one sentence. Subversion is the term, if you look in a dictionary, or criminal codes to that matter, usually is explained as part of activity to destroy things like the religion, government system, political economic system of a country. And it's usually linked to espionage and such romantic things as blowing up bridges sidetracking trains, cloak and dagger activity in Hollywood style. What I'm going to talk about now has absolutely nothing to do with the cliche of espionage or KGB activity of collecting information. So the greatest mistake or misconception, I think, is whenever we're talking about KGB for some reason, for some strange reason... Starting from Hollywood movie makers to to professors of political science and quote unquote experts, some on Soviet affairs or Kremlinologists, as they call themselves. They think that the most desirable thing for Andropov and the whole KGB is to steal blueprints of some supersonic jet and bring it back to Soviet Union and sell it to the Soviet military industrial complex. It's only partly true. Excuse me. If we take the whole time, money, and manpower that the Soviet Union and KGB in particular spends outside of the USSR border, we will discover, and of course, there are no official statistics, unlike with the CIA or FBI, that espionage as such occupies only 10 to 15% of the money, time, and manpower. 15% of the activity of the KGB. The rest. is always subversion. And unlike a dictionary of English, Oxford Dictionary, subversion in Soviet terminology means always a destructive, aggressive activity armed to destroy the country, nation, or geographical area of your enemy. So there are no romantics in there. Absolutely no blowing up bridges, no microfilms and Coca-Cola cans. Nothing of that sort. No James Bond nonsense. Most of this activity is overt, legitimate, and easily observable if you give yourself time and the trouble to observe it. But according to the law and law enforcement systems of the Western civilization, it's not a crime exactly because of misconception, manipulation of terms. We think that a subverter is a person who is going to blow up our beautiful bridges. No, Subverter is a student who, oh, this is where the Russian accent takes over. No, a subverter is a student who came for exchange, a diplomat, an actor, an artist, a journalist like myself, was 10 years ago. Now, subversion is an activity which is two-way traffic. (laughs) (laughs) I think you mean to say a two-way street there.
1: Makes sense. Yeah.
2: You cannot subvert an enemy which does not want to be subverted. If you know the history of Japan, for example, before the 20th century, Japan was a closed society. The moment a foreign boat comes to the shores of Japan, the Imperial Japanese army politely tell them to get lost. And if an American salesman comes to the shore of Japan, I'd say 60 or 70 years back and says, oh, I have a very beautiful vacuum cleaner for you. You know, with good financing. He (laughs) says, please leave us. We don't need a vacuum cleaner. If they don't leave, they shoot him. To preserve their culture, ideology, traditions, values intact. You were not able to subvert Japan. You cannot subvert the Soviet Union because the borders are closed. The media is censored by the government. The population is controlled by the KGB and internal police. With all the beautiful, glossy pictures of Time magazine and magazine America, which is published by the American embassy in Moscow, you cannot subvert Soviet citizens because the magazine never reaches Soviet citizens. It's collected from the news set, newsstands and thrown in the garbage can. Hmm. Subversion can only be successful when the initiator, the actor... Or the agent of, sub, agent of subversion has a responsive target. <laughs> Again, it's a two way traffic.
1: <laughs> it's a two way traffic.
2: It is two way traffic. Um, the United States is a receptive target of subversion. There is what?
1: So he's, he's acting as if your own country can't subvert you. No, basically.
2: he is saying that Soviet Russia. Mm-hmm. Is like Japan. In the example he gave, where Japan didn't want to be subverted, they didn't want foreigners, didn't let foreigners in. Period. He's okay. basically saying Soviet Russia closed itself off to foreign influence. Okay. Whereas America has not. Okay. Now continue. Take it all with a grain of salt because America's still here. Soviet Russia's not. Again, <laughs> not my words. I just thought this was fascinating. So. There is no response similar to that one from the United States to the Soviet Union. It stops halfway. In some ways, it never reaches here. I'm going to take a drink here because we're about to right. change topics. Here,
1: all right. And so I, I am. I don't know. I right now it sounds like he's talking a lot of shit out his ass because again, like Tyler said, uh, Soviet Russia gone, and the, yes.
2: There are some things later that made me go, this man is saying these things in
1: 1983.
2: Keep that in mind throughout this entire document.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: 1983, 38 years ago. That's 10 years older than I am. The theory of subversion goes all the way back to 2,500 years ago. The first human being who formulated the tactics of subversion was a Chinese philosopher by the name of Sun Tzu. 2,500 years BC, he was an advisor for several imperial courts in ancient China. And he said, after a long meditation, that to implement state policy in a warlike manner is the most counterproductive, barbaric, and inefficient to fight on the battlefield. And inefficient to fight on the battlefield. You know that war is just a continuation of state policy, right? So if you want successfully to implement your state policy and you start fighting, this is the most idiotic way to do it. The highest art of warfare is not to fight at all, but to subvert anything of value in the country of your enemy until such time that the perception of reality of your enemy is screwed up to such an extent that he does not perceive you as an enemy and that your system... Your civilization, your ambitions, look to your enemy as an alternative. If not desirable, then the least visible. Quote, better read than dead, unquote. That's the ultimate purpose. The final stage of subversion after which you simply take your enemy without a single shot being fired, if the subversion is successful. This is basically what subversion is, as you see. Not a single mention of blowing up bridges. Of course, Sun Tzu did not know about blowing up bridges. Maybe, they were not that, maybe there were not that many bridges at that time. <laughs> <laughs> at least he's got a sense of humor, guys. Uh... But the basics of subversion is being taught to every student of KGB school in the USSR and to officers of military academies. I'm not sure if the same author is included in the list of reading for American officers, to say nothing about ordinary students of political science. I had difficulty to find the translation of Sun Tzu in the library of a university in Toronto and later on here in Los Angeles. But it's a book which is not available. It's forced to every single student in the USSR. Every student who is taught to be dealing, with, uh, dealing further in his future career with foreigners. What subversion is, Basically, it consists of four periods time-wise. We start from here and go this way, and this is all done in a lecture. This is me jumping in. And so he's drawing on a chalkboard. There are images through what I'm reading here. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's drawing something at this point. Okay. The first stage of subversion is the process, which uh, is called basically demoralization. It says for itself what what it is. It takes from, say, 15 to 20 years to demoralize a society. Why 15 to 20 years? This is the time sufficient to educate one generation of students or children, one generation, one lifetime span of a person, a human being which is dedicated to study, to shaping up. The outlook, ideology, personality, no more, no less. Usually it takes from 15 to 20 years. What does it include? It includes influencing or by various methods, infiltrating propaganda methods, direct contacts. It really doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I will describe them later of various areas where public opinion is formulated or shaped religion, educational system, social life, administration, law enforcement system, military, of course, and labor and employer relations economy. Okay. Okay five areas. I will not write them down because we will not have enough space. Some, sometimes uh, there's that Russian again. Some, sometimes, (laughs) sometimes when I describe all the methods, students ask me a question. Are you sure this is the result of Soviet influence? Not necessarily. Is it the tactic of subversion about which I'm talking similar to the martial art is Is the tactic of subversion, about which I'm talking, similar to the martial art, uh, the Japanese martial art? If some of you are familiar with that tactic, you probably will remember that if an enemy is bigger and heavier than yourself, it would be very painful to resist his direct strike. If a heavier person wants to strike me in the face, it would be very naive and counterproductive to stop his blow. The Chinese and Japanese judo art tells us what to do. First, to avoid the strike. Mm-hmm. Then, to grab the fist and continue his movement in the Use direction... Use their
1: strength against them.
2: Yep. you Continue it in the direction it was, where, uh, where it was before, right until the enemy crashes into the wall. So what happens here? The target country obviously does something wrong. If it's a free democratic society, there are many different movements within the society. Obviously, in every society there are people who are against the society. They may be simple criminals, excuse me, they may be simple criminals, ideologically in disagreement with the state policy, conscientious enemies, simply psychotic personalities who are against anything, right? And finally, there's a small group of agents of a foreign nation, bought, subverted, recruited, right? Right? The moment these movements will be directed in one direction, right? This is the time to catch that movement and to continue it until the movement forces the whole society into collapse, into crisis. So that's exactly the martial arts tactic. We don't stop an enemy. We let him go. We let him... We help him to go in the direction we want them to go. So on the stage of demoralization... Obviously, there are tendencies in each society, in each country, which are, going to, which are going in the opposite direction from the basic moral values and principles. To take advantage of these movements, to capitalize on them, the main purpose of the originator... Uh, I'm sorry, I messed that up. To take advantage of these movements, to capitalize on them, is the main purpose of the originator of subver- subversion... So we have religion, we have education, we have social life, we have power structure, we have labor relations, unions, and finally, we have law and order. One, two, three, four, five, six, okay? These are the areas of application of subversion. What it means exactly in the case of religion, destroy it, ridicule it, replace it with various sects, cults, which bring people's attention, faith, whether it's naive, primitive, doesn't really matter. As long as the basically accepted religious dogma is being slowly eroded and taken away from the supreme purpose of religion to keep people in touch with the supreme being, that serves the purpose. Therefore, replace accept, Therefore, replace accepted and respected religious organizations with fake organizations. Distract people's attention from the real faith and attract them through various different faiths education distract them from learning something which is constructive pragmatic efficient instead of mathematics physics foreign languages chemistry teach them history of urban warfare natural foods home ec- home economy your sexuality anything as long as it takes you away and this is where it gets i'm going to i'm going to break in here and i'm going to remember guys this is the 1980s he's saying these things there's a lot of homophobic um Mm. yeah i don't support this uh he gives an example um that's very he uses gay people as an example just to illustrate a point that i'm not really comfortable with and that's something that i'm i don't like about this but i'm gonna push through it anyway so be prepared for that later if trigger warning i guess um the next is social life. Replace traditionally established institutions and organizations with fake organizations. Uh and I just want to jump in again. This is the nineteen eighties when you know you know, homosexuality was frowned upon. It was illegal. Uh was it illegal?
1: I believe. I know marriage was illegal.
2: I know. The age concern was big, mm-hmm. so it it it's that time period. So yeah, you know, very just, hard I, I time to yes. be. Yes, it was, and I just want to bring that up. You know, I'm not defending his statements on that by any stretch, and I'm not. I don't support them. Um. Anyway, so I'm going to go back to social life. Replace traditionally established institutions and organizations with fake organizations. Take away the initiative from people. Take away responsibility from naturally established link. Take away responsibility from naturally established links between individuals, groups of individuals, and society at large and replace them with artificially bureaucratically controlled bodies. Instead of social life and friendship between neighbors, establish social workers' institutions, people on the payroll of whom, society, no, bureaucracy. The main concern of social workers is not your family, not you. Not social relations between groups of people. The main concern is to get is to get a paycheck from the government. What will be the result of their social work doesn't really matter. They can develop all kinds of concepts to show the government and the people that uh, they can develop all kinds of concepts to show the government and to the people that they are useful. Okay, away from the natural links, power structure. Okay. The natural bodies of administration, which are traditionally either elected by people at large or appointed by elected leaders of society, are being actively substituted by artificial bodies. The bodies of people, groups of people uh, who nobody elected, never. I'm sorry, I screwed that up. They're being substituted by, uh, let's see. The natural bodies of administration, which are traditionally either elected by people at large or appointed by elected leaders of society, are being actively substituted by artificial bodies. The bodies of people, groups of people who nobody elected, never, as a matter of fact, most of the people don't like them at all, and yet they exist. One such group is media. Who elected them? How come they have so much power? Almost monopolistic power on your mind. They can rape your mind, but who elected them? How come they have the nerve to decide what is good and what is bad for the elected by you president and his administration? Who the hell are they? Spiru Agnew, who is hated by the liberal left called them a bunch of enfeebled snobs. And that's exactly what they are. They think they know they don't the level of mediocrity and a big establishment like the New York times, Los Angeles times, major television network you don't have to be an excellent journalist you have to be exactly a mediocre journalist that's easier to survive there's no competition anymore you have a nice good uh, you have a good nice income one hundred thousand dollars a year that's it whether you are better or worse doesn't really matter anymore as long as you're smiling for the camera and do your job that's it no more competition power structure slowly it's eroded by the bodies and groups of people who, don't, who do not have either qualifications nor the will of the people to keep them in power, and yet they do have power. Together with that, there's another process. Law enforcement. Law and order organization and structure is being eroded. For the last 20 to 25 years, if you see old movies and new movies, you can see that in new movies, a policeman... An officer of the United States Army looks dumb, angry, psychotic, and paranoid. A criminal looks nice, kind of. Well, he smokes hash and shoots the whatever drug. (laughs) Definitely in the 80s, talking about the 70s. Uh, Oh, my God. uh, Basically, he's a nice human being. He's creative and he's unproductive only because society oppresses him, whereas a general of the Pentagon is always, by definition, a dumb war maniac. A policeman is a pig, rude policeman. He abuses his power, a generalization like that. The hatred, the mistrust to the people who are supposed supposed to protect you and enforce law and order, moral relativity, relativity. The Angelo Buono process lasted two years in Los Angeles, and yet there are still some lawyers who say, look, he has a nice character. As a matter of fact, there was some witness, also a criminal, who said, well, he's a nice guy. I asked him one day to burn down the house of my enemy, and he wouldn't do it. Nice fellow.
1: I am going to interrupt you real quick. Who is he talking about? Angelo who?
2: I don't know. I did not look that up.
1: Okay. Tell me his name, because I want to look him up real quick, because I have no idea who he's talking about.
2: That is Angelo B-U-O-N-O. I imagine it was some semi-high-profile case. Oh, he's the
1: hillside strangler.
2: Oh, well, <laughs> wouldn't you know.
1: He's a serial killer. Okay. So, so, now you know.
2: The serial killer saying he has a nice character. People, There's lawyers out there saying he has a nice character. Um, so, a slow substitution of basic moral principles whereby a criminal is not a criminal actually. He is a defendant even if his guilt is proven. There is still a doubt. To kill or not to kill, to be or not to be. Thou shalt not kill, yes, but this line may not necessarily be applicable to a murderer. Thou shalt not murder. That should be the presumption, not that thou shalt not kill. Labor relations. At this stage, within 15 to 20 years, we destroy the traditionally established links of bargaining between employer and employee. The classical Marxist-Leninist theory of natural exchange of, of a natural exchange of goods. Person A has five sacks of grain, and person B has five pairs of shoes. The natural exchange without money is when they bargain between each other. And only with the introduction of the third person, person C, uh, an entirely third and foreign stranger who says, no, don't give him five sacks of grain, give it to me and you, Give me, and you give me five pairs of shoes and I will distribute it accordingly so that the economy will go. Sorry, there was some real Russian issues in that sentence. Um, This is the death of the natural exchange, the death of natural bargaining. Well, trade unions were established 100 years ago. The objective was to improve working conditions and to protect the rights of workers from those employers who were abusing their rights because they had more money. Objectively, at that time, initially the trade union movement did work. What we see now is that the bargaining process is no longer resulting in a compromise, which is leading objectively to the detriment of working conditions and increase of salary. What we see is that after each prolonged strike, The workers lose, even if they have 10% increases of their salaries. They cannot catch up due to inflation and due to missed time. More than that, millions of people suffer from that strike because the economy is now interdependent. It's intertwined like one body. Previously, steel workers, say 100 years ago, could strike and nobody would suffer. Now it's impossible anymore. If a garbage collector strikes today... The rest of the multi-million dollar city is stinking. I mean, there's no more service. In Quebec, for example, we had the electricians who were on strike in the middle of winter. You can freeze your bottom, and they were still on strike. Did they catch up with their salaries? No. They lost. Who benefited? The leaders of the trade unions. What is the motivation for a strike? Improving a worker's condition? No. Obviously, it's not. Then what is it? Ideology. To prove... To these capitalists and the obedient horde of workers, like sheep, all of these people. Essentially to prove that everybody that's in the union is just a horde of sheep. Um, And they cannot disobey. Why? Because if they do, you know what happens to them. Pickets, murders, shooting truck drivers by picketers. In Montreal, for example, I saw with my own eyes when I was a correspondent of the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. When the workers of the aircraft factory destroyed computers and equipment in the factory, and the administrators employed strike breakers, their cars were turned upside down and burned, their houses were burned, their kids were intimidated, and some victims were there. Of that, can we be sure? Why? To improve conditions of the worker? No. Ideology. Okay. So this is what happens basically. It may or may not happen without the help of the Soviet Union, but the natural tendencies are being greatly taken advantage of and capitalized on by the Soviet propaganda systems. How? Whenever a trade union strikes, we have an influx of propaganda, mass media, ideological dis- dissemination, the workers' right, and we repeat it like parrots. Yes, workers' rights. Whose rights? Workers? Question. Uh, workers' question mark? Sorry, I felt the need to put the question mark in there. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it sounds... I recommend everybody go read this again. Um, so whose rights? Workers? No. The only freedom of the worker to sell his labor according to his own desire and will is taken away from him. By whom? By the trade union boss. Unlimited power is given. I want to sell my labor not for $2.50 an hour, but for $2 an hour. I don't have the right. My freedom is denied to me. I know that if I sell my work for $2 an hour, not for $3 an hour, I will compete better with the other guy who is lazy and more greedy. I don't need $3. I need only $2. No, I was made to believe by media, by business, by advertising agencies, that I need more and more and more and more. Have you ever heard any advertising on TV to consume less? No, no way. Whether you need a six-cylinder car or not, you have to buy it and hurry up. When I was driving here on the local radio stations, an excited announcer said, you hurry up, rush and save, save, save. There's a penny pantyhose sale. Save by buying more. Of course, of course, it would have been too naive to expect the KGB uh, I'm sorry, it, of course it would be too naive to expect that the KGB makes that av- advertising agency do such a crazy commercial. No, of course it's not. But what we did when I was working for Novosti Press, we would snowplow editorial offices, student organizations, religious groups with literature of class struggle. If not directly Marxist Leninist propaganda, then propaganda of the legitimate aspirations of the working class, betterment of life, Equality. Equality, mind you. President Kennedy once said, we will make America believe that people are born equal. Are people born equal? Is there any mentioning in the Bible or any other holy scripture in any religion? Any religion? If you don't believe me, go to the library and check it. There's not a single word about equality. Just the opposite. By your deeds, God will judge you. What you do is important the merit of your personality. You cannot legislate equality. If you want to be equal, you have to be equal. You have to deserve it. And yet we built our society on the principle of of equality. We say people are equal. We know it is false. It's a lie. Some people are tall and stupid. Others are short, bald, and clever. If we make them equal by force, if we put the principle of equality in the basis of our social-political structure... It's the same thing as building a house on sand. Sooner or later, it will collapse. And that's exactly what happens. And we, as Soviet propaganda markers, are trying to push you in the direction which you go yourself. Equality. Yes, equality. People are equal. Land, land of equal opportunities. Is it true or not? Think about it. Equal opportunities. Should there be equal opportunity for me and for a lazy bastard to come here from some other country and immediately register as a welfare recipient? I never received a single, sorry, I did receive once, but I never applied for welfare. For 13 years, I took any job, security guard, journalist, taxi driver, anything. Well, I was restless, but some people don't like it. They admit it. So why should we be it? Why should we have equal opportunities? Why? At this point in the lecture, a woman answers his question and says, equal opportunity to excel. Yuri replies, equal opportunity in equal circumstances yes but we know people are different to excel yes provided we reach the same level of excellency perfection which is the hypothetical distant future yes maybe but we know perfectly well that even with the best intentions people could not be equal why should we consider why should we have equality in the say legal system myself i consider i'm considered Ah, damn Russian stuff. (laughs) Myself, I consider myself a law-abiding citizen and a person who comes up here... and a person who comes here to rob and shoot. The United States administration under Carter imported thousands of Cuban criminals. There were known criminals, yet they were accepted. Do you think... Do you think it's fair if myself and my wife from the Philippines, who work like a, excuse me, horse, as a lab technician in the hospital should have the same rights as a criminal from Cuba? Why? And yet we repeat as parrots, equality, equality, equality. The Soviet propaganda system helps us to believe that equality is something which is desirable. Democracy, as it was established by the fathers of this country, of this system in the last century, is not equality. The system where different people, unequal people, have a chance to survive and help each other in constant competition and constant perfection, not inequality, which is superimposed from a godfather or a nice person in Washington, D.C. And the absolute equality exists in Soviet Union, quote-unquote equality. Everybody's equal in dirt, except some people are more equal in others. Some people are more equal than others in Politburo, essentially saying everybody's equal in Soviet Union because they're all garbage. So the moment you bring a country to this point of almost total demoralization, when nothing works anymore, when you're not sure what's right or wrong, good and bad, where there is no division between evil and good, when even the leaders of church sometimes say, well, violence for the sake of justice, especially social justice, social justice is justified in countries like Nicaragua, El Salvador, well, maybe Rhodesia, and we listen to them and say, yeah, probably it's true. Is it true? No, it's not true. Violence is not justified, especially for the sake of quote-unquote social justice introduced by Marxist-Leninists. That is, my former colleagues from Novosti Press Agency. Okay, so we reached that point. The next step is destabilization. Again, this word says for itself what it is. To destabilize all the relations, all the accepted institutions and organizations in the country of your enemy. How do you do it? You don't have to send a battalion of KGB agents to blow up bridges. No, you let them do it themselves. The area of application is, again, it's narrower narrower now, not like the previous case. The overt, legitimate actions of the KGB in this case would be hardly noticeable. There is no crime if a professor who recently went to the, went to the USSR introduces a course of Marxist Leninism in a California college, for example. Nobody is going to come to his doorstep and say, okay, mister, come, you're under arrest. No, it's not a crime. It's not even considered a moral crime against your country. So the area of application here is narrowing down to economy. Again, labor relations to law and order, plus military. And again, the media, but a wider scope, is a little bit different. I'll explain later, okay? Basically, the three areas are economy, the radicalization of the bargaining process. If at that stage, we could still achieve theoretically some positive compromise between the negotiating sides with say introduction of the arbitrary judges, a third side of ob- objectively judging that the demands of both sides. Here's its radicalization at this stage of destabilization, at this stage of destabilization, we cannot come to a compromise even within a family, the husband and wife, Couldn't figure out which is better. The husband wants his kids to eat at the table and the wife wants the child to roam around the room and drop uh, drop food all over the floor. They cannot come to a compromise unless they start a fight. It's impossible to reach a compromise, a constructive compromise between neighbors. Some people say, I don't like you watering your lawn at that time because that's exactly the time I'm walking my dog and he's getting nervous that he cannot pass his bowels. They cannot compromise. They go to a civil court or something like that. Radicalization of human relations. No more compromise. Fight, fight, fight. The normal, traditionally accepted relations are destabilized. The relations between teachers and students in schools and colleges. Fight. The relation between an economical sphere, between laborers and employers are further radicalized. No more acceptance of the legitimacy of demands of workers. Unlike the Japanese, if you ever heard about it, when the workers are involved in the decision making process, excuse me, therefore they don't have a moral incentive to fight their bosses. In the United States, it's just the opposite. The harder they fight, the better, the more heroic they look. When the Greyhound Network was on strike recently, and they're talking about Greyhound buses, or he's talking about Greyhound buses here. Uh, the correspondents of local TV networks all over the United States were approaching the strikers and they say, oh, yes, we're doing something nice. They looked like heroes and they were proud. There was some family. The husband was a bus driver. Now they decided, now they decided in the protest against the bosses to camp somewhere in the forest. Um, as they were presented to the audience as heroic, nice people. You see? The violent clashes between passengers, picketers, and the strikers are presented as something normal. 10, 15, 20 years ago, we would... Oh, shit, he repeats some words here. 10, 15, 20 years ago, we would be where... We would be where we would be angry. We'd say... I don't even know what he's trying to say exactly right there. There's would be is repeated like four times
1: there. Read it verbatim Verbatim. and we'll, yeah.
2: 10, 15, 20 years ago, we would, we would be where we would be angry. We'd say, why, why, why so much hatred? Today we are not. We say, well, it's commonplace. Radicalization, militarization. Sometimes as I explained at that stage, I took a step a little I took a step a little bit further. Shooting people. Law and order now is also pushed into the area where previously people would settle their differences peacefully and legitimately. Now we are getting court cases in the smallest irrelevant cases. We cannot solve our problems anymore. The society at large becomes more and more antagonistic between individuals, between groups of individuals, and the society at large. The media puts themselves in the opposition to the society in general at large, separate, alienated. At that stage, you remember, I was taking a couple of hours, uh, I was talking a couple of hours ago about the sleepers. That's when the students from, say, the United States, if they are trained in Lumumba University or developing nations, that the students I was dealing with are being sent back from the Soviet Union to here. Or if they were already in the United States, in the country, which is an object of subversion, they spring into action. The sleepers go up. They slept for 15 to 20 years. Now they become leaders of groups, preachers, I don't know, public figures prominently. They act. They actively include themselves in the political process. All of a sudden, we see a homosexual. 15 years ago, he did his dirty job and nobody cared. Now he makes it a political issue. He demands recognition, respect, human rights. Again, these are not my words. And he rallies a large group of people and there are violent clashes between him and police, his group and ordinary people, no matter what. It's black against white. It's yellows against green. Doesn't matter where this division line goes. As long as these groups come into antagonistic clash, sometimes maliciously, sometimes with firearms, that is the destabilization process. The sleepers many of whom are simply KGB agents, become leaders of the process of destabilitation. It doesn't mean that Comrade Andropov sends Comrade Ivanov to the United States. The person who takes care is already here. He's a respected citizen of the United States. Sometimes he gets money from various foundations for his legitimate struggle for, I don't know, human rights, women's rights, kid lib, prison lib, whatever. There are sympathetic Americans who donate their money to him. Destabilization process usually leads directly to the process of crisis. In this case, of de- in the case of developing nations, this is the area where I was active. The process starts when the legitimate bodies of power, the social structure, collapse. It cannot function anymore. So instead, we have artificial bodies injected into society, such as non-elected commi- committees. You remember when I was talking about them here: social workers who are not elected by people, media who are self-appointed rulers of your opinion. Some strange groups which claim that they don't know how to lead a society forward. They don't, usually. All they care about is how to collect donations and sell their own concocted ideology, mixture of religion and ideology. Here we have all these artificial bodies claiming power. If the power is denied to them, they take it by force. In the case of Iran, for example, all of a sudden we have revolutionary committees. What kind of revolution? There was no revolution yet. And yet they had the committees. They were the, uh, let's see, they were the taking power of judgment. They were the taking power of judgment. They had the power of execution. They had the power of legislation and they had the power of judicial. All of them combined in one person who is half, who is a half baked intellectual, sometimes graduated from Harvard university or Berkeley. He comes back to this country and then he thinks that he knows the answer to all the social and economic problems. Crisis is when a society cannot function anymore productively. It collapses. Obviously, that's the word for crisis. So therefore, the population at large is looking for a savior. The religious groups are expecting Messiah to come. The workers say, we have a family to feed. Let's have a strong government, maybe a socialist government centralized where somebody will put the employers in their place and let us work. We're sick and tired of going to strike and missing overtime and all that stuff. We need some strong man, strong government, a leader, a savior is needed. The population is sick and tired of waiting, and we are here. And here we are. We have a savior. Either a foreign nation comes in or the local group of leftists, Marxists, no matter what they call themselves, Sandinistas, Reverend of some sort, Bishop Merzoriwa, like in Zimbabwe. Doesn't matter. His savior comes and says, I will lead you. So we have two alternatives here, civil war and invasion. See how it goes? Civil war, we know what it is. Lebanon is the best example. The civil war, which was artificially implanted in Lebanon by, injection, uh, by the injection of force of the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Invasion we had uh, in many other countries like Afghanistan and name any Eastern European country. It was invaded by the Soviet, Russian, uh, by the Soviet army. But the result is the same. The next stage is normalization. Normalization is a very ironic word, of course. It's borrowed from the nineteen sixty eight situation in Czechoslovakia, where the Soviet propaganda win the Soviet propaganda, and after them the New York Times New York Times declared the country is normalized. The tanks moved into Prague, and so there is no more Prague Spring, there is no more violence, normal. Normalization. We're almost done, guys. At that stage, the self-appointed rulers of society don't need any revolution anymore. They don't need any radicalism anymore. So this is the reverse from destabilization. Basically, it's stabilizing the country by force. So all of the sleepers and activists and social workers and liberals and homosexuals and professors and Marxists and Leninists are being eliminated physically sometimes. They've done their job already. They're not needed anymore. The new rulers need stability to exploit the nation, to exploit the country, to take advantage of the victory. So no more revolutionaries, please. And that's exactly what happened in a, in a number of countries. You remember Bangladesh? This is the crisis in which I was instrumental. First, they had Mujibur Rahman. In 1971, he was the leader of the People's Party, Awami League, with, mustache, <laughs> this is, with a mustache like Stalin, He was in Russia many times with mustache like Stalin. He was in Russia many times. Um, In five years, he was shot by his former colleagues who were Marxists. He fulfilled his function in Afghanistan. It happened three times. First, there was Taraki. Then there was Amin. And now there is Barbrac Carmel. Carmel. uh, They killed each other successfully one after another. The moment he fulfills his duty. The first one demoralized the country, the second destabilized, and the third one brought it to crisis. Goodbye, comrades. Barback Car- Carmel comes from Moscow, and they put him into the seat of power. The same thing happened in Grenada recently. Maurice Bishop, a Marxist, was killed by Austin, uh, what's his name, General something, who was also a Marxist. So no more revolutions, please. Normalization now. From now on, no more strikes, no more homosexuals, no more women's lib... No more kid lib, no more lib, period. Good, solid, democratic, proletarian freedom. That's what that word is. To reverse this process takes enormous effort. When today the United States had to invade Grenada to reverse the process of subversion. Some people say, boy, this is not good. It's not kosher to invade this beautiful island country of Grenada. Well, why didn't you stop the process here when another was just approaching, when another was just approached by leftists? Why not prevent Maurice Bishop coming into power in the first place? Did Grenadians, did the Grenadians want him? Very questionable. They didn't know who Maurice Bishop was in the first place. He came to power by a coup d'etat himself. No, we let the situation develop further and further and further until the crisis and normalization very soon. And then the United States decided to invade the country, discovering that the country was absolutely a military base for the Soviet Union. Of course, it's a drastic measure. Of course, it's a pity the Marine Corps had to lose what 17 lives very bad why not stop the process before it comes to crisis oh no intellectuals will not let you it's interference into domestic affairs they're very careful not to let american administrations interfere in domestic affairs of latin american countries so they don't mind the soviet union they don't mind the soviet union interfering in these affairs So to reverse this process from here, it takes only and always military force. No other force on earth can reverse this process at this point. Um, At this point, it does not take a military invasion of the United States. It takes a strong action like in Chile, a CIA covert involvement to prevent the savior from outside to come into power and to stabilize the country before it erupts into civil war. Support the right wing conservative forces by money, by crook. So what doesn't matter. Stabilize the country. Don't let the crisis develop into civil war or invasion. Oh no, your liberals will say it's against the law that Congress will not appropriate money for covert actions of the CIA. Why not? Should we wait until the normalization comes? Uh, Soviet tanks and Soviet tanks land at the LA airport. Uh, Now at that point, at the point of destabilization, also the process could be reversed. Again, easier than this. No, uh, again, easier than this. No CIA involvement at this point. You know what it takes here restriction of some liberties for small groups which are self-declared enemies of the society simple as that oh no the media and liberals will tell you this is against the american constitution how can we by force deny the civil rights of criminals for example it's not good so we allow them to if you allow the criminals to have civil rights too, to go on and bring the country is to go on and bring the country to crisis this is the bloodless way to do curb the rights Now, I want to step in here again and say these are not my words. I do not agree with this, and what I'm about to say I definitely don't agree with. He goes on to say, I mean not to put them in prison. No, no. I'm not talking about putting all the gays from San Francisco in a concentration camp. Do not allow them to take political force. Do not elect them to seats of power, whether it's municipality level, state level, or federal level. It has has to be beaten into the heads of American voters that a person like that in a seat of power is an enemy. Do not be afraid of this word. It is an enemy. If it is not, if he is not an enemy here, he will be here. Later on, he will be shot, of course. But at this point, he is an enemy. You're doing a great service by denying him a. You're doing great service by denying him a right to capitalize on his own crazy ideas and become a powerful man, a man who uses the seat of power. Restrictions of certain freedoms and permissiveness at that point would prevent sliding into crisis and probably will return the process of destabilization. To curb unlimited power, monopolistic power of trade unions here at that point would save the economy from collapsing. To introduce a law to stop private companies of raping public opinions, minds, and the direct in to the direction of consumerism. No company must have no company must have a right to force you into buying more unless you want it. There must be a law. You want to advertise your car? Okay, but not a single mentioning of buying it now and saving money. It must be against the law to force people to consume more. Self-restraint. Previously before this process started, self-restraint was a business of church religion because our preachers, the fathers of church would tell us material values are good, but it's not the prime function of a human being because you have to live with something. Obviously, by design for our life. Obviously, the design for our life is not to consume more deodorants. There must be something greater if such a complicated instrument, this human body, was created. Obviously, there must be some higher purpose for that. And it's very easy to avoid destabilization by denying the greedy companies one little freedom, one little liberty, forcing you into turning yourselves into processors of unwanted products and goods. They turn you into machines like the worm. There's inlet and outlet. How long an average appliance lasts these days? Less than a year. Why? Where's the workmanship? We want you to buy more. The destabilization process could be easily overcome if, as I say, the society by its own will or after persuasion of the leaders will come to the idea of self-restraint. It's so hard, we want to consume, want to consume more, but you have to unless you will come to the stage when we say in Russia, if the Sahara Desert... I'm sorry, I, I screwed that up. It's so hard, the idea of self-restraint, we want to consume more, but you have to, unless you want to come to the stage where, as we say in Russia, if the Sahara Desert ever becomes a communist state, there will be a shortage of sand. You have to curb your expectations at this point before it's too late. But no, we don't want to. Demoralization process. Again, it's the easiest thing to reverse. First of all, by restricting import of the import of propaganda is the easiest thing to do. Unlimited, unrestrained import of Soviet literature. Soviet journalists giving Soviet propaganda and ideological agitators equal time on American TV networks. It has to be stopped, and it's easy. They wouldn't, they, they wouldn't, and they won't be offended. As a matter of fact, they will respect America more. But then my former colleague, Vladimir Posner, appears on Nightline, and Ted Koppel asks him, Well, Vladimir, what do you think about this? And what can he think? He is an instrument of propaganda. He thinks what comrade Andropov tells him to think. He's just a nice, articulate mouthpiece of the Soviet subversion system. And Ted Koppel makes you believe that my friend Vladimir Posner thinks. The process of demoralization may not have started at all at that point. The country, which is a recipient of subversion actively, not violently, but actively, prevents importation of a foreign ideology. I don't want America to follow the pattern of ancient Japan. You don't have to shoot every foreigner when they approach the sacred borders of the United States. uh, I'm sorry, you don't have to shoot every foreigner when they approach the sacred borders of the United States. But when he offers you junk in the disguise of a very shiny something, you have to tell him, no, we have our own junk. If at that point the society is strong, brave, and conscientious enough to stop the importation of ideas which are foreign, then the whole chain of events could be prevented. Recently, I've been to the Philippines and I was shocked at how in big cities like Manila, children are listening to deafening music. A melodious, a, a melodious nation with long traditions of good, nice ethnic music introduced by the Spanish a long time ago, maybe two centuries, three centuries ago, I don't remember, all of a sudden listened to music, musical garbage blasting their radios at full blast at full volume. Why? In India, I spent many years watching the reaction of Indians walking out of movie theaters after seeing Hollywood productions. They couldn't figure out why Americans are so wasteful. They smash their cars, their shiny cars, every five minutes. How come they shoot each other with half a million dollars? Is it true that they are so obsessed with sex? How can you imagine showing a movie where each five minutes there's a copulation on the screen to a country like India with a long tradition of respect to this private matter or to Pakistan? And the United States expects these people to respect you. No way. Oh, yes, they'll see the movie. They'll pay the five rupees to see that garbage, but they'll walk out and they will tell their, tell their kids, don't respect Americans and don't be like Americans. So the process of demoralization could be stopped right here, both as an export and an import. And that takes one step, one very important thing to do. You don't have to expel all the KGB agents from Washington, D.C., the most difficult and at the same time simplest answer to the subversion is to start start it here and even before by bringing it back to the society, to religion, to something that you cannot touch and eat and put on yourself, but something that rules society and makes it move and preserves it. A Soviet scientist, Igor Shifarevich, who has nothing to do with religion, he's a computer scientist, did a very intensive research on the history of socialist countries. He called socialist or communist any country with a centralized economy and a, pyramid, a pyram, pyramidal-style power structure. And he discovered actually, well, he didn't discover it. He just brought it to the attention of his readers, that civilizations like the Mohenjo daro in the River Indus area, like Egypt, like Mayas, Incas, and like Babylonian cultures, excuse me, collapsed and disappeared from the surface of the earth the moment they lost religion. As simple as that, they disintegrated. Nobody remembers about them anymore, well, distantly. So the ideas are moving uh, society and keeping mankind as a society of human beings. Excellent. Moral agents of God. The facts, the truth, the exact knowledge may not. All this sophisticated technology and computers will not prevent society from disintegrating and eventually dying out. Have you ever met with a person who would sacrifice his life, his freedom, for the truth like that and... Uh, When he says the truth like that, he has drawn two times two equals four on the Mm -hmm. board. This is truth. I've never met a person who said, this is truth, and I'm ready to be shot to defend the truth. But millions sacrifice their life, freedom, comfort, everything for things like God, like Jesus. It's an honor. Some martyrs in the Soviet concentration camps died, and they died in peace. Unlike those who shouted, long live Stalin, knowing perfectly well that they may not live long. Something which is not material moves society and can and helps it survive. And the other way around, the moment we turn into two by two is four and make it the guiding principle in our of our life, our existence, we die. Even though this is true and we can and this we cannot prove, we can only feel and have faith in it. So the answer to ideological subversion, strangely enough, is very simple. You don't have to shoot people, you don't have to aim missiles, perishings, and cruise missiles at Android's headquarters. You simply have to have faith and prevent subversion. In other words, Just don't be a victim to subversion. Don't try to be a person who in judo is trying to smash your enemy and being caught by your hand. Don't strike like that. Strike with the power of your spirits and moral superiority. If you don't have that power, it's high time to develop it. Develop it, and that's the only answer. That's it. Now, that is done. Again, I want to stress these are not my beliefs. I read that because I want to draw attention to how meticulous the planning was by the KGB of how to overthrow another nation.
1: Well, it didn't work.
2: It I see a lot of similarities going on in our society today. I'm not saying he's right about everything, but I do see the media is controlling us. We're being pushed to buy more stuff. Look at Apple. They're making phones now so that you can't plug headphones in so that you have to go buy new headphones. They're forcing people to do stuff like that. It's coming true. There are things in here, he said, that are coming true, but there are things he said in here that are terrible with regards to human rights. Ah. I think it is worth noting the subtleties and the extents that other countries, until I heard this and read this, I thought the KGB spent most of their time doing the Hollywood stuff. I didn't realize they would do stuff like this and that they even could do stuff like this. Oh, yeah. I am not endorsing this in any means. I do think there are... It does have points, especially for something that's written in 1983 that have come true. but I think there are other points that are explicitly wrong and have not come you know come true. Um, with that being said, though, everybody form your own opinion, don't hold again, don't shoot the messenger. Think about how deeply other people think, or other countries think about things, I guess, is what I want people to take away from
1: this. Huh. Um, I have a lot of opinions and a lot of things I could say. Um, You're definitely right in that this is a polarizing...
2: Yes, I knew it would be.
1: ...polarizing topic. Um, uh, It's... Power corrupts, um, and absolute power corrupts absolutely.
2: Yeah, absolute power corrupts absolutely.
1: Yes, yes,
2: I agree wholeheartedly.
1: And I don't, this I don't think that um, the media and like the buying, uh, Apple constantly coming out with new things that you have to buy is a political thing. I think it is a greed thing. I... Well, that's
2: what he refers to as greed. He says greed... Essentially, what he says is greed distracts you from learning, arming yourself with knowledge, essentially, is what the point he was making there in the middle, at least the way I took it. And I've been saying forever that I don't trust the media. I don't... Either side. I don't trust these big corporations. I don't... I. I mean... I haven't bought a new smartphone in years. I want to get rid of my smartphone, but unfortunately in the society we live in, you really kind of can't have (laughs) one, you know? Um, I mean, you guys know me. I want to move off the grid and not be a part of this. I really don't like where I see our society heading. And I think he makes some good points about it. I think he makes, some again, some terrible points, but some good points too. I think the best time I see more and more uh, strife amongst us, amongst um, Americans. I'm gonna I'm gonna choose the term Americans and even humans. Um, and truth be told, if I wanted to, if I had a problem with, let's say, a set of twins, mm-hmm. I had a problem. I wanted to fuck these twins up. The best time to attack is when they're fighting themselves and they don't see me coming. I think there's a lot of stuff like that going on in our society nowadays where, um, I'm not going to say trivial things, but there's a lot, of, a lot of disagreement happening and we're not a united country and that makes us weak in my opinion.
1: I would agree on that point. Um, but at the same time, I would say the... What people are fighting about and what they're fighting for is not trivial.
2: I, I agree wholeheartedly. It's not trivial. doesn't matter if the two twins are fighting over which one of them shot their dead mother or if they're fighting over a candy bar. My moment to attack is when they're fighting each other. Does that make sense? Yeah. It doesn't matter the issue they're fighting over, which is... All right, guys, I'll be the first one to tell you, I am a pessimist and let me switch this back over. So I tend to have a negative viewpoint on the future in general.
1: So mm. I try to be the opposite. I try to think that everything's getting better everything's going to be okay.
2: You know, that's why <laughs> we balance each other out into one yes. idiot. So with that being said, just because we're running, we're pushing almost two hours here. Oh,
1: Jesus. Okay.
2: I knew this one was going to be a little bit of a long episode, even though I only had two pages worth. Um, I encourage everybody to go form your own opinion.
0: You know, Definitely. Form um, your own
2: opinion. If you want to read this, you know where you can find it. I said it earlier. There's an interview on here where someone uh, conducts an interview with him. I think he makes some good points. I think he makes some bad points. It's... You know, it's more to explain to you how subtle other countries can be at trying to attack our country. That is is my purpose in doing this. I do not want this to become a liberal, conservative, left-right, political, you know, episode. I don't want that at all. That is not my goal.
1: Yes. And it could easily be taken that way. Yes, it could.
2: So uh, again, that's why I have stressed a lot in this episode. I don't believe this. I don't. That's not my purpose. I didn't say my purpose necessarily at the beginning just because of the structure of the episodes. Mm -hmm. But I want to make that very clear. That is not my purpose. I want to show you the... Subtleties. Subtleties, the extremities, the ways in which... I consider myself an average Joe, so average Joes wouldn't think that other countries would go about harming our country. So that makes me question what's going on today behind closed doors in other countries in our country, with our own government, even and at the oh, excuse me at the risk of sounding like a conspiracy theorist, <laughs> oh my God, question everything. Seriously, don't question whether the earth is flat, round or flat. That's stupid nonsense. But question, if you read a news article, can I find this somewhere else? Is this repeated? Do I get two different stories? Do I get five different stories if I go to five? You know, question stuff like that. Form your own opinions.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's the point I want people to take away from this. Look
1: into scientific sources, actual sources, not... Yes. Not Joe that you went to high school with that now... Is yeah. it a lawnmower,
2: and yeah, don't don't use Facebook for a source. I'll call it out. Facebook, Twitter, any social media. I'm the biggest anti-social media person out there. I think it's one step forward, two steps back. You guys can tell because I so don't shit do anything at okay. social media. <laughs> um, but I definitely think there's there are lessons to be learned from this, and there are um are lessons to be learned on what other countries do and what we should not be doing as well. You know, some of the condemning of certain groups. You know that is terrible. We shouldn't be doing that. But you know, we I think we do need to watch out for media. I think we need to watch out for corporations. They influence. I mean, I forget. I think it was Wozniak or. Steve Jobs or one of the big wigs at Microsoft came out and just flat out said they don't let their teenager have a social media profile or anything like that because they, I'm sorry, maybe it was one of the social media, uh, like the guy that started Twitter or Facebook or something. I don't remember. Uh, Look it up. I'll, I'll look it up and post the link maybe. But they wouldn't let their teenage child have it because they knew it was designed to be addicting. Yeah. So I just want to make that point. You have anything else or you want to go ahead and
1: um, knowing that your point in this was just to talk about how uh, subtly um, ideas and stuff can happen um, I I went into that knowing how subtly things okay. like that can happen and I don't know if I know that because I was really into psychology I don't know if it's just from reading so many um, like novels and stuff that are about political espionage i didn't I'm not sure. Um, but there are a lot of average Joe people that are not aware at how easy um and how subtly things can happen. yeah so
2: i I had no idea I heard this I heard uh, another podcast mention this, and a snippet of his interview, and that sparked me sparked my curiosity. So I researched it. Um, it's one thing that you know. Just while I was reading this, came to mind. You know, he and I'm not. I'm not trying to say yes or no to anything in this article. Um, but it, he was talking about something about violence, and it just popped into my mind. If there were in a scenario, you had someone that was a quote unquote sleeper, it could literally if they're trying to spread a violent mentality. It could just be something like buying a young kid, grand Theft auto, you know, and I'm not, mm-hmm. that, I'm not that person. I love grand Theft auto. You know, <laughs> I am not condemning grand Theft auto, but I'm saying you can see how something so small like that could be influencing a youth. Depending on how you think of that, you know?
1: Yes and no. Um, but since we're nearing two hours, I don't want to get super into sure. everything. We can do that off the air. Um, but yeah, I get what you're what you're saying. I get where you're coming from, um, and it is important that people are aware at how easily um, manipulation occurs. manipulation happens. Yeah. yeah, maybe I know that because I'm a Slytherin, and I manipulate. Yeah, I know how to manipulate to get what I want.
2: Yeah, um, um, I I'm bad at manipulation, so I get manipulated. So this was all news to me I was blown away and I was like people will go to this length and do these very subtle things and'll we'll, people just won't see it and I think more people are average Joe's probably like so probably. I wanted to get it out there and make some awareness but all right on that note
1: Trivia with Tyler.
2: On a happier note, the first donut machine was made in 1920 (laughs) to meet the demand for donuts as a breakfast food item following World War One. Adolf Levitt, a Jewish refugee who came to America fleeing Tsarist Russia, designed the machine and began selling fried donuts from his Harlem bakery in New York City. Yum. um. On that note, we're just gonna jump right in.
1: Final thoughts. Um, this is a whiskey that I did dip into again. I have a DD, so I wasn't worried about um feeling it.
2: I saw that. And I was like, "Oh my god, my topics, making Megan, hit the bottle."
1: <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there were definitely some points during your topic Uh, where I was like, I'm going to...
0: I know,
2: that's why I made it very clear. It's not my personal beliefs.
1: Yep. Um, As far as this whiskey goes, I wouldn't have dipped into it again if I hadn't have liked it. Um, I did try a drop of water in it. um, And what I noticed when I added the water is the initial sweetness comes on stronger, but then the pickly brininess... Is also stronger there at the end, so it kind of takes away the mid uh, sm- smoothness to me.
2: Wow, I just did that, and it's um, wow, very. I get the saltiness mm-hmm. um, towards the end, and that front, brine. I didn't get any, no sweetness. I got straight pickly rye flavor.
1: I I, I get the sweetness very tip of my tongue, but it c- quickly goes into. Um, the pickle, and it's definitely a salty, pickly flavor.
2: Yep. Well, oh, so, I like that too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I actually am like, well, maybe, maybe this would be one that I would enjoy drinking with ice cubes that will melt it and make it more pickly. Um, uh,
2: yeah. Cause you, you like, you're a pickle person. I love pickles. Yeah. Um, all right. So, what would you like? What are you going to rate this one?
1: Uh, Jefferson's Ocean. I think this is a win. Um, this is something that I, I do actively want to go out and get, not that I drink enough. So I'm sure I'm sure I have to get rid of, drink some of the whiskeys I currently have sitting around before I am allowed to go and get uh, Jefferson's Ocean. Um,
2: Just to butt in here for one second, I'm trying to get this where you guys can see it without the glare. This is a uh, 375 milliliter. It's a half fifth and it was about $45. Mm. the full fifth is about 90. You might be able to get it on sale. Cheaper than that. Lort. Just a reference.
1: Lort. Yeah, this would be one I want. Uh, at price point, me personally, I'm not going to drink it often because that's a big price point, um, but it seems like all my favorite whiskeys are the fucking expensive, expensive? ones. No shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is an eight. I like it. It's not earth shattering, but I like it a lot.
2: Since we're low on time, we've just hit the two-minute mark. I'm going to make it short and sweet. Two-hour. What I say?
1: Minute.
2: The two-hour mark. Sorry, <laughs> check it. I'm going to make this short and sweet. Um, There's an eight for me as well. All right. I liked it when I had it the first time. I liked it again today. All right. So on that note, um, just want to remind everybody, do your own research, form your own opinions. Don't be told what to think. Um, go vote starting next weekend on our eight. Whiskies that you want to see us blind taste test on the year end podcast, which I believe will come out on the year end or will be oh, the day after Christmas. Oh. Merry Christmas.
1: Yay, Merry Christmas. A couple months out.
2: Yep. So all right, guys. Until then. Awesome. We will see y'all next week. Thank you week.
1: so much. Have a good week. We love you. Don't drink and drive, and cheers.